So I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 5 before we get to Psalm 26. I, I just, I really think there's a focus here, and I haven't really mentioned this, you know, for a long time, and I know I've done it a lot, and uh, so Matthew chapter 5. Sorry, my microphone is acting up a little bit, guys, still. We're trying to get a new one. We need to get that done this week. So Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at um, the Beatitudes, some, just the, some of the Beatitudes there that really, to me, spell out, lay out the, the gospel very, very clearly. And what I want us to see today, I usually cover just the basic gospel, but I'm going to cover the, the, the last few verses as well to see that, that how it relates to you and I. So the important thing is to understand that you and I are sinful and separated from God. Right? All of humanity, I said that last week, is in the same boat. We've all sinned. We were on the same boat. It sank, and we're all in the water. Right? We all need rescue. Right? That's, that's so important to understand. And then, but, but coming to that understanding is is the hardest thing in the world, right? Because we think we can swim a long ways, or we think we have our own, our own piece of wood that I'm going to stay afloat forever. I can tread water longer than you can. Fine. Everyone's in the water. At some point, you're going to fail, right? At some point, you're going to perish in the water if you don't get out and get in Jesus' lifeboat. So uh, I want us to look at the Beatitudes, and, and Jesus is speaking about this, uh, and really, I think there's this progression in our own heart, progression in the human heart towards salvation. And what we see here in, in chapter 5, verses 3 and following, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs, or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, that, let's stop there. There's a lot to go into there. We're not going to do that today. That's not the point. I want to just key in on a few of these phrases to see, see where our heart lies. Today's title of the sermon is Attested Devotion. So you and I should be able to go back to our, our moment of time or, or season in life, our faith journey, when, when God got a hold of our heart and when we yielded ourselves and trusted him in faith to forgive us of our sin. We should be able to, to identify that place. And today I want us to examine that a little bit and test that. So here's the progression of, of what should be happening in the human heart, one who's in the water. First they need to understand they're in the water, that they're going to perish, that they're going to die, that they're separated from any hope of, uh, any hope of life on what they were on, it's gone to the bottom of the ocean, and what they need is now new rescue. And here's what verse 3 says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, when we understand the depth of our sin, we become poor in spirit. We, we become poor in spirit to the point of, I can't believe it. I'm separated from God. There is no hope. There is no rescue outside of Jesus Christ. I am doomed. And when we become that poor in spirit and that grieved and that much in despair, what does that lead us to do? Blessed are those who mourn. It leads us to mourn and to grieve over our sin and to weep because of our separation from a holy God. And, there, and, and really that, that weeping is, I, I don't know how to resolve this. I, I need it resolved, but I can't resolve it. And it's really important for us to understand that we can't resolve it because it's blessed are the humble, right? That's the next thing. Or the meek, some would say. And I always say this in, in, in passing as we talk about coming to faith in Christ. It's blessed are the empty, they don't come to God saying, God, look at all the things I've done and accomplished and all these great works I've done and the attitudes I've had towards people. Look at my resume. Look at what I figured out. And God, I found this awesome, huge door floating in the ocean, and I sat on it for so long, you should be so proud of me. And God's like, no, that was me being patient with you. It wasn't about you. We come to God humble. We come to God empty. We grieve, we mourn, we come to God empty and humble. And when we're really empty, 
It's only when we're really empty that we can see that he is the treasure that we need. Amen? Only when we're really empty. God is not a great treasure if we don't have, if we have everything else we need. If we've added ourselves, added to ourselves all these works and all these, these things and, and idols that, we, oh, I'm comfortable, I'm good, I, I should be in good shape here. I'll sit on this little door in the middle of the ocean forever. And you don't need anything? You don't see him as a treasure. You're, you're like that guy in the joke, right, that was sitting on top of his roof as the floodwaters rose and the boats came by and the helicopter came by and standing before God like, what'd you do? God, where were you? I sent you two boats and a helicopter, you dummy. Like, there's the raft right there. Oh, no, God, I got this. That's not empty. Empty is, I need, I need you, I need you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practically skip and run across the water to get in that lifeboat, whatever it takes. And, and see, when we're empty, that's only then can we really hunger and thirst. Right? How many of us in America are really actually physically hungry before we eat meals? Right? We, we eat enough that we don't really have hunger. But there are times, there are days, there might be times you get up in the morning, you haven't eaten like last night or something, and you're hungry, your stomach's growling, like, I need sustenance. I need, my kids were, were hangry yesterday morning. Right? They, they ate breakfast a little too late probably, and they were just kind of getting hangry. So let's, let's take care of this. So are, are you hungry? Because only when you hunger and thirst for righteousness will you what? Be filled. You see, when we came to our faith in Christ, we came to him as the greatest treasure that could ever be. And, and, and as we came to our faith in Christ, he is the only thing that can sustain. He's the only thing that can save. We left everything else behind. It, it sank with the ship, people. It's gone. All we have now and all we need now is Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, when we're filled with righteousness, now, now we're saved, we're rescued, we're in his boat. And he clothes us with his righteousness. He, he puts his robe around us, his life jacket around us. It's not about us anymore. Ours is still filthy rags and worth nothing. But his is worth everything. And we come to him in that, 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 that grandeur, that uh, attitude of faith and belief to trust in him. And then what does it do? What, what does it produce in our lives? See, so many people think, oh, just pray a prayer and you're good to go. No, we come empty. If you don't come empty, you haven't really repented of your sin. You haven't turned from those things and come empty. And then what does it produce when I do come empty and when I am filled? There should be a actual, an actual fruit that's produced. We sometimes wonder, well, I don't, I'm not sure. My, my, my brother, easy, or my sister, or my, my in-law, or my mom, or my dad, or whatever, your son or daughter, oh, they're, they're good. They, they believe, but they just aren't really living it right now. Maybe. But what we see when we really hunger and thirst for righteousness and are filled, we see what we are filled with the Spirit of God and a, a fruit is produced in us. So we, we have to kind of lay off of that. Well, I don't, he, maybe he's saved, maybe he's not, he'll, he'll be okay. Maybe he won't, maybe she won't. Maybe we should present the gospel and, and of Jesus Christ as the treasure that it is and call people to repent of their sin and come empty before him so they could treasure him. Because then in their lives is produced, blessed are the merciful. We become merciful. Right? Blessed are those who are pure in heart. We'll talk about that a lot today. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who do so much good, in fact, they're going to be persecuted because of that good. You see, there's a fruit that's produced there. So today as we go into Psalm 26, I want us to understand David wasn't perfect. But as he came before God, he had that attitude where, God, you're my treasure. You're my greatest treasure that has ever been. And I, I want you to to verify that in me and, and hold me accountable to that. So today's title is Attested Devotion. Attested Devotion. In every so-called Christian group, there will always be true worshipers and there will be hypocrites. Those with divided hearts and divided minds. So we have to examine ourselves, first of all. 
and test our own devotion, as was David's prayer. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read Psalm 26, and we'll break it apart. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace, for your mercy. God, we ask that as you are here today, that you would guide us and direct us into your truth, that you would open our hearts and minds to be receptive to the word of God that you have for us today. God, that it would challenge us and it would convict us of sin and it would move us to a place of repentance, of emptiness, of obedience, God, of deep, deep faith and trust in you. So we leave forever changed. God, we want to honor you. Help our hearts and our minds to be undivided. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at a tested devotion. I'm going to read uh, Psalm 26, and we're going to go uh, verses 1, uh, 1 and, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 26, 1 through 12, the entire psalm. It says, Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind, for your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands of innocence and go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed in whose hands are evil schemes and and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. So today we're going to get a tested devotion. And I think as David prays out, he's like, God, I, I, want, to te- I want you to test my devotion to you. I want, to, I want you to examine it. I want you to tell me if I'm wrong in some way and, 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 and lead me in the way everlasting. That's, that's always been a prayer of David's. And it should be a prayer of ours as well. So the first thing we see in this tested devotion is we, we can test ourselves in the way of, number one, an undivided heart. An undivided heart. And do we have one or not, right? So David, Psalm 26, verses 1 and 2, he says, Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. The idea of vindicate me is, is God, give me justice. Like, like, by my actions, by the evidence associated with my life, prove that this is true, that I am fully devoted to you. Now, that's difficult to say, right? We, we like the idea of, hey, God, vindicate me. Get me off the hook here. But what David is actually saying is, God, I want you to vindicate me based on, on the evidence presented that it could stand up in court, that I trust in you, that I believe in you. Vindicate me, Lord, because why? I have lived with integrity, and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. There's two things there that are important. First of all, let's talk about integrity. Integrity is, is wholeness of character. It, it's, it's the idea of an undivided heart and mind, that I, I say and do what I believe, right? I, I, I do what I say, and I say what I do. I don't say one thing and do something different. I, I, I'm a person of character, a person of integrity. There's wholeness there. My whole heart is there. Now, here's what that means. He sets this up. What does a whole heart devotion look like? What does undivided heart look like? It says, I have lived with integrity, and two, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. You see, there's faith there, right? He's trusted in the Lord. I, God, I have faith in you. And, and a lot of us say, oh, I have faith. I have deep faith. But he goes, he, he goes on. He goes further than that, right? It's not just, God, I trust you. It's, God, I trust you so much that my actions prove that I trust you. I lived with integrity. 
It's that faith and works thing that goes together. And he says, I've lived with integrity. He's making that claim. Well, God, God reiterates that later on in 1 Kings when he's talking to Solomon. He says, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked with a heart of integrity and do what is right, right? So he's describing David to Solomon. Hey, D- David, your dad was a guy after my own heart. He was a guy uh, with a heart of integrity and he did what was right. So God attributed integrity to David. Even though he messed up, he was still had wholeness of character and he had an undivided heart because he trusted God and he lived by and in that trust. So he could say, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. Where else do we see this? We see this in James chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there with me. James chapter 2. There's this heart and mind connection here. James chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses... 14 to 26. Fix this a little bit. Maybe that'll work. I don't know. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We'll come back to Psalm 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Interesting there, right? But some will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. By my works, right? You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, huge analogy here, like this is a deal breaker thing. Just like the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You can't claim to have faith and not have works. What does it mean? If you don't have the works that are by faith, you don't have any faith. It doesn't stand on its own. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, but we see there, and James says, aren't you willing to learn that Abraham was justified by works in offering Isaac as a sacrifice? Well, wait a minute. Is he justified by works or did he believe God? He believed God and therefore trusted him so much that he acted on that faith in offering his son Isaac, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because faith without works is dead. Faith without works reveals an un, or a divided heart, but faith coupled with works reveals an undivided heart, that our heart and our mind are, con- are, are connected and, and, are, and are one. So the question is for you and I, do I have a divided heart? David, David said, I, God, I don't have a divided heart. I don't, I don't think this is me. I think this is my faith and my works being lived out, and that's why I live in integrity. And he even says, 
check me out, examine me, please tell me. You see, when we live just by faith, we really don't want God to examine us because our works don't line up with that faith, do they? But David said, hey, go ahead, and, go ahead and examine me. Not only do I believe and I say I believe, I live that out. He says in Psalm 139, search me, God. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. He says, see if there is any offensive way in me. See if there's any offensive way in me, God, and lead me in the everlasting way. So do you and I have an undivided heart? When we come to Christ in faith, and when we come to him as the greatest treasure, we come to him empty, repentant, desiring for him to fill us up, and then he clothes us with his righteousness, that is the greatest gift we've ever received. And, and that, out of that gift should, should well up greater faith and greater works that go together. It should well up an undivided heart if we came repentantly and empty to Christ. So ask, God, is there any undivided heart in me? Repent if there is and let God renew you and make you new. Number two, we see in this tested devotion, we see number two is aligned priorities. David goes on. He says, There's some, I have some aligned priorities here, God. He says, for your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell and the place where your glory resides. We're going to sing that song in a little while. Better is one day, right, in God's house than a thousand elsewhere. Do we love God's house? So what are some things here that, that he lays out for us? What are some of the aligned priorities? Well, in that first verse, verse 3, for your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth. What he's saying is, listen, I, I align my priorities with, with you, with your guidance, with your truth. I seek your wisdom. And in, in, a, in a day and age where we seek wisdom and we have, we have truth all over everywhere and it's, it's labeled as truth, but it's some, it, it can all be right, right? All, everything that's being said to us cannot all be right. You and I have to seek the truth in God's word. It's, it's crazy how, how barraged we are right now, isn't it? Think, go back 100 years. Go back 150 years even, right? And then from then back, we didn't have the kind of media we have today. We didn't kind of have the kind of loud voices screaming at us like we do today. We didn't have people who could say or do anything they wanted to and try to make you believe it all the time, 24-7, right? You, you might have been lucky to find a newspaper and pick it up and read some articles and hopefully discern that, but you had the Word of God, and, you, and it's been always been faithful and always been true, and it was a guide. So, so often it was like, well, I don't know if that's true. This is true. Now there's like 30 things speaking at us, and then there's the Word of God. It just becomes number 31 instead of becoming the one. David said, God, you're my guide. What you say goes, I live by your truth. Your faithful love is what guides me. So he sought God's guidance with his priorities. The next thing we see is uh, in, in his priorities, they were aligned uh, as far as how he associated with people. And who he associated with? We need to test that in our own hearts. Where are your priorities as far as associating with people? What did David say? I don't sit with worthless or associate with hypocrites. Or I, I said, I, I, he says, I hate the crowd of evildoers. I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. It's like, God, I'm done with that. I'm, I'm out of that crowd. I, I might have lived there at one point, but I'm not there anymore. Right? That was how it used to be, and now it's not. I'm called out of that. Now, for you and I, as we just went through the Strangers and Exiles uh, series, what did we see? That we are still called to live in the world. Right? We're called to be submissive and loving 
right? We're in the world, but we're not called to be of the world, right? We live in the world, but we're not of the world. So Paul even said, if, try it. Try to get away from all of the, the evil around there. He said, if you, if you did that, what would you have to do? You have to leave the world. You have to just remove yourselves and be gone because it's everywhere. But we don't get to the place where we're going to participate with the worthless. We don't get to the place where we associate. When, it, when we say, talk about associate, it means that, we're, hey, these are our groups. These are our people. These hypocrites, these sinners. And, and Oh, Jesus loves sinners. He hung out with sinners. Yes, he hung out with them, but he didn't associate himself. And, and by the way, he was the son of God, right? Perfect, perfect in his humanity, perfect, all, all in God. But he did not associate himself with like, his group around him were sinners called out of sin and to faith in Christ called out of sin into repentance and into faith. And they were called the disciples and apostles. That's who he spent his time with. Others would follow and they'd fall away and follow and fall away. But he would go and seek and save the lost. Right? And so, yes, as we go into the world, as we live in the world, as we have jobs in the community and interact with people that, that don't love Jesus, we certainly need to be in their lives. We certainly need to be pointing them to Christ. But we don't associate with them in the way that, hey, I, I, I agree and, and I, I like what you do, so let's, let's get together and, and we'll be okay with that. I hate the crowd of evildoers. I don't sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. And he says, I go around your altar. So his, his focus changes. It's like, I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wondrous works. What's his priority? It's worship. So he's aligned himself in guidance. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in you and your guidance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, align myself with, with people who don't associate like this. And I'm going to align myself in worship of you, in reverence of you. My life is going to be lived out in worship, in reverence of you. I want to boast about and tell about your wondrous works. Verse 8 says, Lord, I, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. What's the next alignment he has? What does he love? God's house, being in God's presence. And, and it's important, I think, I think the, the gathering together of the body of Christ uh, in the New Testament church is, is, is indicated here. We should love to gather and, and be together where God will dwell. And where does God dwell now in the New Testament? He dwells inside of the believer. That you and I are also now the temple. So we can't just say, I love the, love the dwelling place of God and I'm going to go there, which we should, for one another and for the reverence and, and worship of God and thanksgiving of God. But you and I need to understand that when we leave, we're still there. If I'm going to align my priority to be in, in the presence of God and conscious of the presence of God, it should be all the time, 24-7, everywhere I go. Not, only on, not just on church, at church on Sunday mornings, right? Or Wednesday night at Bible study or a small group on Tuesdays, wherever you do. 24-7, if I have trusted in Christ, come empty before Him, and He has filled me with His Spirit, He resides in me, I am now the temple of God. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 14 through the end of the chapter, he says, don't be yoked together with those who don't believe. So really showing off here what, what, what uh, David had said. I'm not going to associate with these, these types of people. Don't be yoked together with those who don't believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Making a strong point here to the Corinthians. Listen, you're, you're dabbling in things you shouldn't be dabbling in. You're going places you should not be going. You need to separate yourself, consecrate yourself unto the Lord, and let Him, let him rule and reign. And by the way, it's not just on Sunday morning, he's saying, where, where idols might be present during worship. He says, you, we are the temple of the living God. 
And he quotes Scripture. As God said, I will dwell and I will walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And I will be the father to, a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Then verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, So then, in regards to what I've just said about you being the temple and, and us being clean and, and consecrating ourselves to the Lord, he says, So then, dear friends, since we have these promises of God's Holy Spirit, of being saved by grace through faith alone, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So as we, as we are testing our devotion, we look, do I have an undivided heart? But then we test our devotion and say, do I, do I have aligned priorities? Are my, my priorities aligned with God's priorities? Are, are, seeking Him for guidance, finding the right associates to be with and, and be in life with, to learn from and to grow together with? Am I worshiping God with everything I've got and abandoning idols? Am I, am I desiring to be in His presence and to know that He is present always in my life and to see His Spirit rise up in me as I seek to be holy and pure? Am I walking? Am I living? Am I obeying in the presence and the awareness of God's Spirit because He's always with us? And then am I speaking about it? I think there's a line of priority. He says, I'm going to tell about your wondrous works. Psalm 49-10 through 10, it says, I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I think, I think that was kind of a funny thing that he said there with, with God. He, let, me, let me read it again. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. Right? David, what did David do all the time to God? He just went on from the depths of who he was. He was always talking to God. And I, I almost see it as a quip there, like not a quip, but like an understanding that he's talking a lot to God, right? Like, I don't keep my mouth closed, as you know, God. Uh, I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Now listen, if we have come to a place where we were poor in spirit and grieved and despaired and depressed and then we mourned over our sin and we made a, made a choice to empty ourselves and say, I'm, God, I'm, I'm getting rid of my idols. I'm getting rid of my sin. I'm going to turn to you in, in hunger and I'm going to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. And when he filled us to the brim, if, if that's what we have experienced with God, from utter despair to utter joy in Christ because of His righteousness, why would we not want to share that? Why would we not want the world to know that? Listen, the world, if you look at that passage in Matthew 5, the world bounces back and forth between poor in spirit and mourning all week long, all their lives. They're poor in spirit, so they, uh, then they mourn, and they're like, okay, I'm going to do something about this. I need to get rid of some vices, so I'll, try, I'll start to be humble. But then what do they do? They don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's righteousness. They hunger and thirst for something else that will fix their problem. And they try that for a while, and it ends them back up poor in spirit and mourning and seeking and hungering for something else. That's the, that's the status of the world. Listen, church, if you and I have found, faith, have found our, our faith in Christ to be whole, if we have found found joy in being rescued from our sin and, and we've been saved by the grace of God, we don't have to seek after it somewhere else, right? We're not, we're not looking for this fix in something else. we found Jesus. He's our greatest treasure. We have the answer. And the world is still searching. Now, they're going to reject the answer all day long. They'll do it. Even when we present it so graciously, they'll, they'll reject it. Man, don't you want to present it to them? We know. We know what the answer is. And if you don't know, then you, you need to come to faith in Christ. The answer is always Jesus. The answer is always not me. 
and not you. But it's always Jesus. And it's us proclaiming about him. The Lord was faithful to his covenant. And David was faithful to the Lord. Although David, he occasionally fell, right, as we all do. The pattern of his life was a habitual pattern of walking towards the Lord and toward his word. His desire was to delight in the things of God and to refuse to have fellowship for the things that weren't of God. His delight was to share and boast about the greatness of God. Listen, the assembly of the wicked needs our witness, right? There are tons of people out there that need our witness because they're going to hell. They don't have Jesus. The congregation of the righteous is where we share our fellowship, though, and share our joy, where we encourage one another. And, and granted, we know, as David did, many of the wicked would come into the congregation of the righteous. They would come in and want to have fellowship or want to, to b- believe that they're safe and secure, right? The wicked came into the sanctuary, and it kind of made it as a cover for their sins, thinking, oh, if I come and go to church one day, I'll be back and right standing with God. So they come here to do that, but David went to the sanctuary not, to, not as a cover for his sins, right? But he came to the sanctuary to worship God for his grace and for his mercy. His hands were clean, his sacrifice was acceptable, and his voice clearly portrayed what was in his heart as he praised the God who had rescued him from all his sin. So what does my life say about my priorities? That's a question we should ask ourselves. What does my life say? What does it reveal about my priorities? Are my priorities aligned with God's or are they not? Finally, in a tested devotion, what we see is faithful footing. We can test our faithful footing. Back to Psalm 26, the final verses 9 through 12. Do not destroy me along with sinners, or my life along with men of bloodshed, in whose hands are evil schemes, and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity, he says it again there. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. David couldn't stop the hypocrites from from joining in. But what he could do was to help become like them. That his focus would be towards the Lord. That his sure footing was because of his faith in God and because of his faithfulness to God. He asked the Lord to keep him from sin that would, uh, that would identify him with the evil or that might even uh, bring punishment and judgment upon him. I like it there. He says, do not destroy me along with sinners. I think there's a couple ways that I, I can reflect on this. Number one is, is don't let their, their actions destroy me. Right? When he says that their right hands are filled with bribes, this is like high-level government corruption is what he's talking about. And where is David? He's the king. So high-level government corruption means people at his right hand or his left hand in his, in his other office, the people that are around his table are the ones who are coming against him, the ones that are sinning. They're, they may be saying one thing, but they're doing something else. So what does David say? God, I don't, don't destroy me. Don't let, don't let these, these clowns destroy my hope, destroy my joy, distract me from you. How often are, are we there? We're in places where people's actions really hurt. We're grieved greatly by by people around us that, that treat us poorly. And there are times like, I just want to give up. I want to stop. I'm done. I'm throwing in the towel. Right? Try being a pastor, right? Try being a parent, right? You know, you, know, you, you understand that. Try to be a good friend to somebody. Try being a model employee. Those, sometimes those things don't get you much, right? But our faith is somewhere else. It's not in being praised. It's not in a cush role, a position, 
It's, our faith is in God. And we say, God, don't, don't destroy me. May, it not, may their actions not destroy me and hurt me so much. And the second, second way is, God, I'm not like them. He's crying out, God, I, I live in, with integrity. God, I'm not like them. Remember that. Remember me when you pass judgment on them. He's like, I might be in the line of fire. I'm, I might be seen as collateral damage. God, help me and keep me out of that when that judgment comes. So, he, so what about this faithful footing? He says in verse 11, I, I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. So we aren't going to be associated with them, but I want to look at how Paul said this as well. What did Paul talk about? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Talking about uh, the example. He's setting the example of Israel. He said, hey, remember the Israelites who came out of Egypt and, and what they did as they came out of Egypt and they were, they were coming towards the promised land, how they treated God and how they sinned and, and look at their actions. He's like, don't do this. If you want solid ground, don't do this. He says, don't become idolaters at the, uh, at the, at, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and they drank and they got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example because faith and work should be connected. right? And they were written for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. So now for us, we're seeing the end come to fruition now, right? It says, so, in verse 12, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. And we think we stand, but we, we really haven't examined our own heart. We haven't examined our own priorities. We haven't, haven't examined, have we been faithful to God or are we being unfaithful to God as the Israelites were? So he's saying, listen, you've got to test yourself and see because it's really easy to fall. Are you in the faith? Are you are you really passionately serving and loving God? Are you faithful to Him? And he goes on, he says, so, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. But he goes on with a promise. No temptation has come upon you, believer. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way out so that you might be able to bear it. So we're faced with all kinds of choices every single day. All, all kinds of choices for good and for evil. And God says, listen, I, I want you to choose faithfulness to me. And I'm going to have that door always open. That's always going to be available to you. And as, as you choose, as you and I choose faithfulness, what does he say? I'll always provide the way out. So be faithful to walk through that door. And that you're going to be able to bear it or to stand firm. Think about the armor of God. We put on the armor of God so we can withstand. And we can stand firm. I think there's something we need to clear up here. Uh, sometimes we try to f- have these firm places to stand in our life so that our life would feel smooth and not so bumpy. Like really, we, we try, we try to, to navigate our circumstances and, and orchestrate our circumstances and micromanage our lives so there's, a, there's some stability in it. So I feel kind of like, okay, things are, things are okay. What's the problem with that? Open question. What's the problem with that? Jesus isn't the foundation. What else? What's the problem with that? Before we get to Jesus isn't the foundation, when we, we try to organize and, and orchestrate and control our circumstances, what's the fallacy there? What? You're trying to do it? What over here? It's in the flesh. 
And, and have you ever ran into circumstances of your life that you can completely control? No. Right, think about it. Right when you're like, okay, just, I just got this ironed out. It's going smooth. It's great. The phone rings. Right? Someone texts you. Something, a car breaks. I mean, something happens that is way beyond your control. So if you and I try to approach stable ground by just trying to control my circumstances, even if it's like I want him to look like Jesus would want him to look, it's not going to be stable. Because stable ground is only found in Christ by our faithfulness to Him. It's not about controlling my circumstances. It's about controlling my heart and my attitude and, and having faith no matter what is going on around me. It's not that I'm going to build the rock on which my house is going to be built. So we spend most of our lives trying to pour that foundation, don't we? The foundation has already been built. It's Jesus Christ. We don't build the rock. We build the house on the rock. He is the rock. We still feel the effects of sin and and, and the circumstances around us as they crumble in. But our stability in our lives is, is from faithfulness to Christ. See, honoring God is the motive. I, I want to honor God, and as I honor God, there's a, that's a, there's a firm foundation in that. Because at the end of the day, what accusation really matters? Besides, were you faithful to God? Because at the end of the day, that's the only one we're going to answer to, isn't it? Is God. I don't build, again, I don't build a rock to build a house. I build the house on the rock. My last verse is Psalm 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. So we go to the Scriptures, right? Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious Spirit lead me on level ground. So I, God, teach me to do your will. God, I want to live my life of faith out in action. I want to live faithful to you. I want to walk through those doors of escape when temptation comes my way so I'll be able to stand. God, teach me to do your will so I can be faithful. And as, as I do that, your gracious spirit is going to be leading me where? On level ground. See, our hope, our, it, it's a faithful footing. It's not, see, so, so often like I just want a firm foundation. Be faithful. Trust God. And rest on level ground ground. And David knew that. David knew that chaos was ensuing all around him. But he, he cried out, teach me to do your will. May your gracious spirit lead me on level ground. So may we test our devotion by, by our faithfulness to follow God and, and be led by his spirit. That our, our faith and our works would be present together, combined in an attitude of faithfulness to God on solid Amen? Why don't you stand together? Let's pray and we'll continue in our worship time. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that as we look to the Word today, we see this, this illustration, God, this test of our own devotion and our allegiance to you. And God, help us to, to really test ourselves. Do we have a divided heart or not? God, do we, do we have right priorities that are aligned with your priorities? God, do we seek your guidance? Do we associate with who you want us to associate with? God, do we, do, we, do we love the place where you dwell? Do we want to stay there in your presence and be led by your Spirit, God? And do we, do we stay in that place and, and are we led by your Spirit to a place of solid ground where we have sure footing? Not because we've controlled our circumstances or we've, we've built the rock, 
but because we've built our home, our, our house of faithfulness on you. And you are the great rock of our salvation. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.